Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a symphony-loving private eye. I am the Adam Glass, and every private investigator has to have their wood idiosyncrasy. So whether it's loving the symphony, or always having a lollipop in your mouth, or being able to stretch. Uh, being, being a skeleton. <laughs> the skeleton private eye. Classic... Classic Private Eye, the skeleton. I've played um, Grim Fandango. It's true. It's true. I forgot Grim Fandango was the reference you were making, and I was hoping that you just made it up. I a broken man who thinks that like, there's, a, there's a whole genre of skeleton Private Eye, like detective novels. Yes. That's I thought maybe, I thought maybe you confused. were I thought you were very confused about the premise of the thin man. Okay, well that yeah, that's possible. I I mean that that's actually not that unreasonable when you think about who I am. But uh, yeah, no, I I I I specifically these days, after they did the the remake of Grim Fandango, the the HD yeah. remake, like I cannot associate like cheesy noir with anything else at this point. That's good. That's good. Um, of course, the Thin Man's actual idiosyncrasy was drinking too much, uh, so. which is really I mean is really the the generic one, right? True. Oh, I need a private eye or a detective. What could his idiosyncrasy be? He drinks too much. I did, however, just watch uh, Jessica Jones. So I need to. I need to watch the second season of that. But the second, you know what? I, I what prompted me to watch it? And let's just derail this entire thing and fu- fuck. Absolutely, let's we'll just do this. Yeah. Um, what, what prompted me to go watch it immediately was somebody complaining that the just some random reviewer. I don't even remember who it was complaining that. It is boring because Netflix feels an absurd desire to stick with the sort of standard numbers that people make for TV shows. Uh-huh. Like, oh, well, half a season is 13 episodes or 12 episodes. So yeah. they made 12, and it was like, well, it's it's slow because of that. And I was like, so I went and watched it, and you know what? I, I very much disagree. I, okay. I just, I can't, I mean, it is not what I think the people people might be looking for. In that the the in many ways the threat in this this series is more existential than anything else, but I mean it's still interesting. It's still very good. Hey Pat, do you like talking about Criterion movies? I do not. <laughs> do you? You don't. That's <laughs> no, not at all. That's really actually, like the. Uh, this is a form of penance for me. Um, I have a lot of guilt uh-huh. uh, in my soul, and I've yeah. decided to kind of pay my. You know, you know. <laughs> this is sort of it's sort of a sort of a self-flagellation sort of thing. I don't. Um, generally speaking. Your uh, your karmic punishment should be related to whatever whatever your karmic crime. Well, let's was. be specific. As a teenager, I was a very bad person in movie theaters. Ah, uh, okay, okay. So that's what you this remember is. who that's I was is. friends with throughout it's true. Uh, at least the first half of high school. My behavior <sighs> in movie theaters was 
just abysmal. And I deserve I to be punished for it, frankly. So that's what this is. That's what this is. Well, I do enjoy talking about Criterion movies, but I also enjoy talking about non-Criterion movies. And over at patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion, if you want to help support Lost in Criterion and our continued existence as we continually soldier on through this ever-increasing list of Criterion films. Right. Um, I mean, let's be clear here. As with any sort of karmic punishment, I will never be free. Yeah. So this is not going to end. The podcast will go on forever because I can never do enough to absolve myself of my own sins. It's true. It's true. Um, that's, that's a great theological point. Good job. Um, <laughs> anyway, over at patreon.com slash Criterion, we do non-criterion films. Uh, every month I curate a list, and for just $1 a month, you get to vote on what movie we're going to watch, and you get access to that episode when it posts. Uh, we've done some really interesting stuff, some really not so interesting stuff. It's really, it depends on the mood I have when I make the list as to what the theme's going to be. And generally, uh, that leads to either very good movies or very bad movies. Movies that <laughs> maybe should be in the Criterion Collection. Usually or, bad. or movies that should never see the light of day. So we've done Monster Squad. We've done The Americanization of Emily. We've done... Uh, Ernest Goes to Camp recently, uh, and we've done Dog Day Afternoon. You know, it's really, it's it's a wide swath. We are uh, very as far confused as what we do. people. We are very confused people, but it's us doing our thing, talking about movies outside of the Criterion Collection, which really, it's hard to say that the Criterion Collection pigeonholes a certain type of movie, but it does pigeonhole Since We have a never certain, been able to figure out what that is. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there are certainly movies outside of the Criterion Collection uh, that uh, no one is surprised are outside of the Criterion Collection, right? Of course, well, there are movies I within mean, the Criterion Collection that plenty of people also, are surprised. Yes, yeah, for sure, are there? So, uh, but yeah, sometimes we watch movies that are on par with Armageddon and The Rock, and sometimes we watch movies that are uh, probably. You know what? I'd really, I'd honestly put something like Dong Day Afternoon or The Americanization of Emily as on par with some of our favorite. Oh, I, I absolutely would agree with that. And and and, yeah. and Dog Day Afternoon's absence from the Criterion Collection is actually sort of like upsetting yeah. to me to this. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. Um, given that there's at least one other Sidney Lumet film in the Criterion Collection, I'm kind of surprised that Dog Day Afternoon isn't in there, and it seems like. Given that it's based on a true story, there would be plenty of supplemental material for a good Criterion release of Dog Day Afternoon. Nonetheless, we digress. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion if you want to hear us talk about non-Criterion films, or uh, if you just want to support us, because that's really cool. Uh, $1 a month gets you access to that. Uh, $5 a month gets you thanked on air. Uh, and thank you, Adam Speakerman and Jason Westhaver, for your continuous support. And Jason Westhaver recently upped his support to $10 a month, which gets him a postcard that Pat yes, will draw. Does. And I which, will write a little note Which gives me on. a purpose in my life. It does. It gives Pat purpose. And a Pat's purpose is to provide... Wait, uh, am I a dog? Too much, <laughs> there's too much alliteration going on, and I've yeah, lost this track is getting really upset. There's, there's a lot of implications in what we're saying that I am not comfortable <laughs> with. <laughs> anyway, thank you guys for your support. Thank you for... Uh, for others who have come and gone over the course of our Patreon 
Uh, and thank you, listeners. Uh, even if you're not giving us money, I certainly understand uh, not having the income to to support these sorts of things. So, uh, so I also we're glad you're listening. I have children. Yes, we're glad you're listening, even if you're not supporting our Patreon. Though that we are, is, we're certainly so thankful for our Patreon supporters. This week we are talking about Unfaithfully Yours, the 1948 Preston Sturgis film, uh, starring Rex Harrison, a person whose name I recognize, but the only movie Don't I can know think why. of that no, the only movie I can think of Rex Harrison being in uh, wasn't he Doctor Doolittle. Oh God, I don't even know. He was probably he was. sounds about right. So, unfaithfully yours. Yes, unfaithfully yours. It is a screwball black comedy. Yeah, it to is. Way Wikipedia, and I, I think that is that is an accurate description of it. <laughs> like, like let let's be clear here. Um, I don't always pay attention when we're watching movies. This may this may be obvious to anybody who listens to the podcast. I try. But, you know, I look away occasionally or I'm doing other stuff and I look away, especially during ones that are in English. Um, I missed the fact that in the first murder scenario, we had gone into his dreams. <laughs> Dream sequence. Yeah. And I was like, this shit got dark. <laughs> it was like, that was like a big turn. I was like, wow. And then I was Even like, knowing. as we got towards the end, I was like, we have like half a movie left. What are they going to fucking do? Even knowing it's a dream sequence. It's still dark. Yeah, no, 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 it definitely is. But, But, like, for me, I was like, what the fuck is happening? Like, he just murdered everybody. Or, you know, he just murdered his wife. He framed this guy. He's cackling in court. We have, like, 45 minutes of film left. Yeah. What are they going to do? And then then as as he started to cackle, I was like, oh, oh, okay. Like, I get what's going on here. But, um, um... it is still very super dark. And also the fact that he decides that, like, it is both an interesting sort of writing strategy to have him then try to go through all three of the possible scenarios yeah, in real life is is a funny writing mechanism. And none of them I work. Enjoy. And none yeah. of them work because he's just not actually the person he imagines he is, right? It is a, it is a fascinating – it is any time – it is – it's always fascinating to me whenever somebody writes a story where a person's daydreams and the reality, the real capabilities diverge that much is always fascinating to me. Um, it's it's always a fun thing, but it is also very very dark that like he decides to try to go through with two out of the three of these plans. Yes, and the, and to be fair, the third plan was to like embarrass her to death or something. So. Like, well, no, the third plan was the third plan was to play Russian roulette and he just yes. it should have fallen apart so bad that he didn't even have the person he wanted to play Russian roulette with with him anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> yeah. Uh it was a uh, more of a guilt trip thing. Uh Sturgis by the way, um you know, we've seen stuff from him already. Uh Sullivan's Travels, The Lady Eve. Um those movies were both made in 1941. Sturgis from 1940 to 1942, uh, he made eight movies. Seven of them released. Uh, the Miracle at Morgan's Creek was filmed in 42, but uh, wasn't actually released until 44. Um, it was actually the, 
which means it's nine because the great moment was filmed in 42 and not released until 44 either um so he had that that period of just incredible output and right some of his most well-known movies are part of that incredible output and then this is 1948 so it's it's four years later things have slowed down for him um and from what I've read, the Criterion essay actually goes so far as to say that General Sturgis scholars, because the Criterion essay will use that term uh, instead yeah, of, of course, fans, why not? Yeah. Um, don't even really consider this one of his good movies. They sort of put it outside of, like, if there's one Sturgis film that they would pretend doesn't exist, this would be it. Uh, is what kind of what the Criterion Collection claims about it. Uh, it's certainly outside of his most prolific period. Um, but I haven't seen anything to suggest that it was hard to produce or anything like that. Sturges wrote it in 1932, uh, originally, uh, which is interesting in and of itself. Um, uh, but... Well, no, no, never mind. It was hard to produce. Right. Fox, Universal, and Paramount all rejected the script during the 30s. Um, Is it just because it's so dark? I, I think because know. it's so dark. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I can't blame them. Like, yeah. This is some fucking dark shit. Uh, but yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah. Uh, also... Uh, studio attorneys, when this came out, were very concerned that the main character, Alfred de Carter, uh, a famous English conductor within the narrative of the film, was a little too close to real-life famous English conductor Sir Thomas Beecham, uh, and they wanted Sturgis to sort of tone down the parallels. Um, I, though, though Wikipedia notes that the similarity was noted in, in some reviews anyway. Uh, the... Uh, Sturgis doesn't really have a leg to stand on claiming that it wasn't based on Beecham. Uh, mostly because, uh, as, as Wikipedia notes in a parenthetical, uh, Sir Thomas Beecham's grandfather was Thomas Beecham, a chemist who invented Beecham's pills, which were a laxative. Uh, okay. Sturgis named his character Descartes, uh, some speculate, after Carter's little liver pills. Uh a different laxative. Okay. Yeah, but like, uh, here's the thing. Like, yes, okay. Um, I agree. This seems obvious, but also, who the fuck cares? Yeah. Like, not. I'm not. Not about the points you're bringing up. I. I mean, I. They are worth noting. I'm just saying that, like, from a purely sort of like, why would it be such a big deal? And that's that's the thing to make it's not a, like a comedy that kind of lampoons a famous person. Yeah, I I mean I feel like that did happen. I mean like that's not a a phenomenon exclusive to the modern era like of no. film. Like uh, famous people get lampooned. That's a thing that happens to them. I think one one idea here that the lawyers might be a little iffy about, and the lawyers lawyers today would be iffy about too, is we are suggesting that Sir Thomas Beecham uh, might at least contemplate murdering his murdering wife. his wife. Yes, I I do understand that, and I can see how that would be upsetting, but like that, I mean, at the same time though, like I I don't know, like it's they wouldn't get sued because I mean it. 
it is very clearly comedy. You know what I mean? It is very clearly. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I get why they would be hesitant to do it, but I also feel like that's kind of maybe an overreaction to this. But yeah, uh, people didn't really like this movie when it came out. Um, yeah, that figures. Yeah, <laughs> that's actually really not surprising. Uh, even in '48, I think uh, I think America was not uh, was not in a mental <laughs> place. Right, for, not in a place a to like, like be like, "This is perfect. I love this yeah. film." Um, I'm going to start this sentence and you're going to think that I'm talking about someone else. Uh, one famous director, uh, lists this as number eight in his top 11 movies of all time. Martin Scorsese? Nope. Quentin Tarantino. Uh, well, you know, it was really one or the other. (laughs) Yeah. Frankly. Uh, unfortunately, as near as I could find, uh, no Scorsese, uh, connection to this movie at all. Though I didn't look very hard. This must be a dark... Yeah, this is a dark place in history. He can't go here. There's some other time <laughs> you, cop there. Yes, usually the Scorsese uh, connections just kind of present themselves. So I don't have right, to. Right, it's usually like Martin Scorsese, blah 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 blah, somewhere in the Wikipedia uh, article. So yes, said this or movie alternatively, been... he did such a good job on this one that he managed to erase himself from it. Maybe, maybe. Ah, <laughs> uh, time traveling Martin Scorsese. I love you. Um, Before he got sloppy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> One of his... Maybe this is just the last thing he did, was was save this movie. Um, there is a claim that this movie was plagiarized uh, because a, uh, a man named William Shapiro, who claimed he was an independent film producer, according to Wikipedia, uh, tried to sue, or did in fact sue Fox uh, and Sturgis for putting this out, uh, with a claim that the story was plagiarized from him, um, from an unproduced screen story by Arthur Horrell, um, that Shapiro had wanted to produce. The connection was supposed to be that composer Henry Wyman, uh, who frequently worked with Sturgis, but did not work on this film, uh, had been interviewed by Shapiro as the, uh, prospective, uh, composer for his movie and that then that composer went over and told told Sturgis about the movie apparently <laughs> Wikipedia does not record what the end of that uh well considering that this litigation movie got was made I'm gonna go yeah. out and say probably did not probably well, the, favored, favored Sturgis the lawsuit was was post uh oh okay post release uh, which also makes me think that maybe it was the movie came out and it wasn't doing so hot, so Fox concocted this plagiarism lawsuit, and then it didn't uh, it didn't D- pan didn't out. In, it didn't it didn't make uh, it didn't make the movie as famous as they wanted it to make. Um, obviously, all speculation on my part, but yeah. Uh, the music here is done by uh, Alfred Newman, um, and for a. It's a movie, it's got a lot of great musical moments, uh, but obviously the bulk of its musical greatness are pre-composed pieces from, from famous composers. So, right, I but, mean, I mean... That, but outside yeah, of that, it, Newman, Newman does very well with the, with the, with the music composition here. Um, and sound design in this movie is actually really great. 
period across the board. Yeah, I, I was actually um, a bit concerned because at the, at the very beginning, it, it's hard to tell like where it's going with the sound. But then when you yeah. find out more, it, it all makes a lot more sense. I don't know. Like when you very first uh, the sound plays such an important role in yes. sort of the overall the, the way the plot flows. But when you first start the film, it's really heavy on sound, like on on music and things like that. And you're like, yeah. "Wow, why are they going laying into the music so thick?" And you're like, "Oh, okay, I now because I it's understand. thematically appropriate, right?" Matt. But but like when you first start the film, you don't know he's a, comp- a famous uh, exactly conductor exactly. until like we're fully, I don't know how far, but we're I mean we're at the airport. But even then, we don't. It, it doesn't seem thematically appropriate until we find out that like this is his life, you know. So, um, yeah. I love, I love that even within this uh, this composer's fantasy world, one of my favorite things that happens in his dream sequence is that he records himself as thir- at thirty three and a third and plays it back at at seventy eight, and his voice is just the spitting image of his wife's on that recording yeah. Yeah. <laughs> somehow somehow he thinks that will work like he is so distraught in his fantasy that that seems like an accurate i won't accurate i mean thing. i love i love i mean like let's be clear here his fantasy frame up would fail miserably in so many oh. ways yeah. Never mind and, and the fact course, that like we, that it falls apart in just the fact that he can't even fucking get the the recorder yeah, he, out or figure out how it works i do adore adore the like manual joke yeah i oh. am so desperately in love with the like see the the simplified diagram on page six it's like the <laughs> yes. greatest thing i've yes. ever seen in my entire and it is so like, simple i love it so much so simple it operates itself the the wonderful <laughs> meta so joke good. that that no one will have gotten on release or or certainly not us without uh external information is that that piece of equipment, that real, I think it's even called like the sim, simplitonic or something like that. Yeah. Uh, that piece of equipment uh, that he, in his dream sequence, just pulls out of a cupboard and it works. Uh, in reality, is a professional piece of equipment that like requires two engineers <laughs> trained how yeah, to do yeah, it it's to like run. Crazy um, fucking complicated. I love yeah. it so much. Yeah, that he thinks he thinks they're just going to uh, going to work out. Um, oh, it's it's so good though. It's just so, so. I mean, I just like I just died. I and every time he has to go reference it again, it's just oh. Yeah. I it is rare that we watch a movie that will actually make me giggle while we're yeah. watching. Like you know, what I mean? the, yeah. that doesn't happen a lot. And there's this a lot about this movie that is movie. rough. In terms of like sort of like the, the the messages of this film, but that joke is just so fucking good. And the um, and and how slapsticky his entire it, it 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 does really it's actually kind of amazing because this movie has a really dark message really, but the slapstickiness of his botched attempts at the end, yeah, do take some of the edge of that off. You don't feel. I mean, like, he is planning to murder his wife. Yeah. Without ever hearing what she has to say. It's well, real, that's, that's real fucking dark, okay? But the, the slapstick, I mean, it's 
it's interesting that they are able to make the slapstick goofy enough that you, as a audience member, are like, oh, well, he'll never. This this idiot can't. He yeah. wouldn't be able to do it anyway. You you know, really, honestly, inside of yourself, you like even even if he were able, like, he's not. He's just not really capable of this. All of those, all of those dream sequences are Walter Mitty style hyper competency. Yeah, uh, daydreams. Which I, which I love for a guy who absolutely cannot do any of that stuff in real life. Right, his only skill is (laughs) conducting symphonies and orchestras. He's good at that. He has no other capabilities. But yeah, Uh, I do find it interesting that. his uh he's so easily swayed right uh he believes his wife has cheated on him on almost no evidence and then uh on her word accepts that oh she really does love me at the end and all of this was my confusion um well and then, like there's and no evidence either way no but but here's the thing right like when you really get down to it i, I think the movie the movie is trying to say a couple things that are not super dark which is number yeah. one I think it's trying to make a point about artists in general mm-hmm. and the way that sort of like these sort of hyper sort of temperamental behavior types, right? Like this sort of swing. Like we see he's a very emotional person long before we find out this. He reacts intensely to things emotionalized, right? So that's, I think, part of what it's trying to say there. But also, he very, very clearly spends a long time not wanting to believe this is true. We get a long yeah. lead up of him trying not to believe Oh yeah, absolutely. Right? And then the moment that he is given any other possible answer, he jumps on it because that that's not that he doesn't want to believe that she is cheating on him. And and really the the private eye as far as his not very he's also not a very bright guy. He is presented with what he feels is sort of incontrovertible evidence that this is happening, right? And it's the moment. The, and and what really makes this movie upsetting is that he, at any point in time, could have talked to her and we could have ended the movie. Yeah. But, I mean, that's how movies work, right? Because movies, of course. We, we've had this conversation a million times. Like, wow. Especially. Conversation not happening is 95% of film, right? Yeah. Especially screwball comedies, uh, right? Exactly. Most, mostly everything is is predicated on uh, lack of communication, right? And so we we just take that as as a matter of you know fact, right? I mean, we just you yeah. have to accept that it's like watching a modern horror film because like the you know you either have to explain the lack of cell you know cell phones not working or just fucking just not even deal with it and everybody just suspends disbelief right um but i mean it's fine i mean it it it, i mean it it just he is what i mean the movie is about him being presented with this evidence and not wanting to believe it but then flying into this emotional rage because that's what he does he flies into hyper emotions over every little thing because again that's another part of comedy right like i mean yeah this would not be interesting, or it would be interesting, but it would not be this movie if he just mauled over the information he's gotten in a very level-headed way, the way normal people would. 
nervous and upset about it, but also like not dreaming, daydreaming of murdering his wife. Yeah. Like, I mean, the movie has to present you with a person who is not real in order for it to work. That's fine. Because a normal person's reaction to finding out this very, very vague evidence would not be to start daydreaming of murdering his wife. Yeah. And I think that the movie also plays in in two conflicting stereotypes. Because on the one hand, he starts off as the stiff upper lip Britishman. And and it's obviously not true. Uh, none of none of what he's hearing. And he, he yells at his brother-in-law for, for even uh, attempting to... Uh, do this well i mean we find out i can't remember the relationship well anyway. no it's his brother-in-law yeah. but like no but he also gets i mean we find out he's not that person within yeah. within a relatively short span of time right because yeah. the moment he gets away from people with his wife he becomes this like he says yeah. things like the only purpose of music is to like lay back and i forget what the entire phrase was but it's a pretty good uh synopsis of how music should be enjoyed yeah, and then and then he becomes the temperamental artist, uh, right? Yeah, but those, I don't um, I don't think I don't think temperamental artist and this kind of that that character are can't coexist. I mean, the stiff upper lip like stodgy British guy obviously can't coexist, but that's just not actually who he is. That's almost yeah. a character that he puts on, a persona he wears for certain people at certain times. Yeah. And for some reason, one of them is his brother-in-law. So, well, but his brother-in-law is is his own special kind of bad person. Who, it's kind of I I kind of understand it. Like, yeah, he, he that that's that's if you were British, Adam, and you needed to give somebody the cold shoulder, <laughs> the easiest way would to just suddenly play super stodgy British guy. Yeah. We just don't have that in our arsenal, Adam, because we are not, in fact, we're British. not. We're not stodgy Des- Despite, people. despite what you would lead people to believe, what I think, like the end of junior high school, I forget what that was. <laughs> I did spend a time uh, speaking in a British accent. Um, I don't remember why. I don't, and I, I don't, don't remember what year it was, but it was definitely almost a. It I was think at it, least a year. I think it was nearly all of eighth grade. Uh, yeah. Well. Okay, psychologically, why? Probably because I had just moved to a new town and and yeah was cultivating cultivating myself as uh, the uh, uh, eccentric that I right, and, thought and, would make and, me and interesting at the time. I'll probably also creating a sort of emotional barrier to help yeah protect you from dealing with the fact that you have to deal meet a whole bunch of new people. Right? Yeah, a bunch of dumb new people. Yeah, they were dumb. Let's be clear here. <laughs> to be I am, fair, I am they including were myself. They were children, and I was yes, dumb we, too. We were all children. Um, but yeah, I uh, <laughs> I am not a stodgy stodgy British person. Even then, I I didn't pretend to be stodgy in my Britishness. So it was just a terrible accent. But had you <laughs> been British for real, that could have been a go-to whenever you didn't yes. want to deal with somebody. Yes, indeed. I did, also, also, I made no attempt to convince anyone I was British. I didn't lie no, about my origins. No, no. I just spoke in the accent for some reason. It I just sound a, like I, I'm trying to remember the conversations we had back then because I believe that 
you, part of part of why it may have continued is just how much it frustrated some of us. <laughs> that you that would just not talk too. like regular, basically. <laughs> yeah. And we're like, why do you talk like this? Stop. I, yeah. I assume that that fueled your fire to a certain extent. Anyway, I'm I'm I certainly understand why people hated me in high school. So, um. <laughs> I didn't hate you in high school. I hated you in junior high school, Adam. Let's be clear. Yes. Yes. Uh. Nonetheless, I I hope in my heart of hearts that someone, while playing classical music, imagined killing me in the... (laughs) Somebody concocted some really elaborate... (sighs) Well, to be fair, Adam, more than one of the skits that we wrote involved tape recorders, and I'm pretty sure we came up with something like that. Quite possibly. I am fairly certain that at one point or another, we concocted a scheme. (laughs) Okay, that involved the tape recorder and like the fact that we could off, you know, do the essentially the same plan. Um, I don't think it involved speeding up the tape. Um, I think it involved splicing together the things you said. Uh huh. But I mean, it's the same general gist. <laughs> ah, wherein Pat admits a plan to frame me for murder. That, that's well. It's unclear. It's been a long time whether it was to frame you for murder or just murder you and then get away with it. We're, I, oh, it's frame, all very it's frame all me very for unclear. suicide. Well, there we go. Right, yes, uh, or or frame somebody else for your murder. I, it's all very unclear. It's been a while. Ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I uh, I am both incredibly intrigued by this and don't want to know anymore. So well, you you got it. Part of it's to understand that it's B and Andy. So. Yes, that's that. That explains a lot because me and Andy in a room in eighth grade for more than about an hour, some weird plot was a was a boom, <laughs> okay, of, of dubious like you know reliability. Pat makes reference here to Andy Heaney, who has been on one episode of Lost in Criterion before. He was in the very first episode posted, the Christmas yes. episode uh, from our very first year of existence five years ago. Uh, and has not been. But back. that gives him a special place in our hearts. Yes. As yes. as the first guest. Yeah. Um anyway, I really loved Unfaithfully Yours. I I, I, I did too. It's incredibly I was funny. Concerned. I was really concerned because I was like and even now I feel a little bit weird inside because of one of the messages like the idea that a but it's just goofy. It's just a joke. And I'm a I enjoyed that a lot. It, it was yeah. very... It reminded me of... Well, I mean, it reminds me of things like Arsenic and Old Lace and things like that that I love very much. These sort yeah. of weird scenarios that are just impossible. Like, that no... I worry because it's like... It, it seemed like it was headed in a very dark direction. And I was like, well, yeah. I don't know if I'm going to enjoy... I don't know. I don't mind dark comedies, but I I, I was like, well, this is this is... You know, again, I didn't know it was a dream, okay? So yeah. it's like, man, this is getting so fucking dark. But, like, in reality, it's just hilarious to watch something that is just none of these people exist. This this universe that is in this film just does not exist on our Earth. And yeah. that's and it kind of absolves it of some of its sort of sins, right? Now, also, uh, I will say that... Uh, Arsenic and Old Lace is certainly something else that could be described as a screwball dark comedy. So, well, it, no, yeah, I mean, there's a reason why I 
literally yeah. one of my favorite movies of all time. Okay. Yeah. So it is, so it's, it's in our right real in house. this vein. Yeah. This is yeah. right in this vein. Like like when I was shown our signal lace by my father for the first time, I died. Yeah. Like we probably like watched that. And then the sad thing in, in my life was is that the, at that time we didn't own Arsic and Oldies. I had to wait for it to come on TCM every so often. But you better believe we watched it every time it did. Um, but uh, yeah, this is this is I I now own this. <laughs> Good. And I I I was really hesitant. Like when I was like, ah oh, man, do I want to buy this? Because I bought the the last what was the last sort of what was the movie we watched not that long ago that was. Um, no, it was the one right before this. When was that? Oh shoot! It's also an English-speaking film. Uh, what we watched last week is yes, that what you're I don't me? remember Adam. It's actually it's our recording schedule has been in a bit of flux recently. So so to be fair to Pat, he didn't watch it all that recently. No, it's actually of, been a long time ago. But uh, Lubitsch's uh, Heaven Can Wait is what you're thinking. Yeah, of. so I I bought Heaven Can Wait, and that's meh. Meh. Yeah, but I am not disappointed with this purchase at all. Well, good, good. I I enjoyed watching it. I will enjoy showing it to my son later, if nothing else, for that fucking diagram. <laughs> and, and, and well, the, the whole the whole slapstick joke of him like the, it keeps ejecting the record. I, that's all. Yeah. it's all beautiful. And then I her love... comments while her comments while he's trying to write the check, because yeah. in his head. There's a logical flow. It exists in the daydream, and and so he assumes she will say the things that she said in the daydream. And watching her derail him, yes, is just so good. Like yes. her reactions to everything are just so good in that second half of the film. It's like I was a little bit worried because it's it's really about him, right? And so I was like, well, is she just going to be sort of a prop? For the entire film, yeah. but her part in the second half of the film is really good, and that's actually a very interesting thing. This movie purposefully does is within his fantasy sequences, everyone's a prop. The acting, yes, is yeah, absolutely, which is great stiff. because that's how it should be, right? It's your fantasy. Yeah. Everybody does exactly yeah. what you want, and they do it almost robotically, right? Because like uh, you're not them, you're you. So, and even the machine works robotically, <laughs> right? Right, the machine of, worked the first time perfectly, yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> I love it all. It's so good. Uh, I also, uh, uh, <laughs> I really love her reaction when he tries to get her to play Russian roulette in reality, and she says, "Oh, I used to, I used to play that." Yeah, with no, dad. it's so good. It's so good. Oh, it's, so it's good. like no, that's Russian bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Oh. oh, there, there are a lot of great lines. I don't, I. I never like to get bogged down in just remembering our favorite lines from a comedy, um, but the writing in this, the pacing in this, it really is an incredibly clever and funny movie. Uh, I I like this better than the other Sturgis we've seen. I want um, trying to remember the other Sturgis. I certainly seen, really I, love I, Sullivan's Travels. Um, I'm just, yeah, I'm trying to remember it. I mean, I remember liking it a lot. I just don't remember. Yeah, Sullivan's anymore. Travels was the one about the film producer who wants to produce big, important works uh, about homelessness and and poverty during the Great Depression. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, then yeah, realizes yeah, yeah. that okay. people just want escapist movies. Um, and then 
Uh, <laughs> now I've got to remember what the lady leave was about. Uh, no, that's what about the marriage or whatever, right? Isn't it like uh, the ma- like they, the lady they're, they're like conning the somebody or something? I, that yeah, one's where they're trying like, to that one I to... liked actually a lot. I think I think yeah. if my memory serves, but it's really the plot is like way more intricate than the plot of this. If memory serves, right? Because isn't like people try aren't a bunch of isn't it two con men con, trying to con each other but no. also falling in love while they're conning each other or is that a different one that is a different movie the lady okay. eve is uh uh it's about uh, a the young inheritor of a brewery uh who is on a riverboat i think in south american and falls in love with a con woman uh and then she shows back later pretending to be a different woman to con him again oh <laughs> right yeah okay yeah right. Okay, so, uh, starring Henry Fonda and Barbara Stanwyck, uh, it is a delightful movie. I think I think we liked that one less than we liked Sullivan's Travels, even even when we talked about it. Uh, and well, because I think those about, two were closer to back to back, weren't they? That we watched, those yeah, a lot closer yeah, they were time. they were within a few episodes of each other, I'm sure. Um, uh, Spine one hundred three and one eighteen, Lady Eve, right. and I mean, Sullivan's this is, Travels, this respectively. This is radically far apart, and this is radically different to those films, I think, too. Uh, those were both, you know, Sullivan's Travels is about making screwball comedies that act as escapism. Uh, the Lady Eve is an example of such a movie uh, instead of something big and important. And this movie isn't necessarily trying to say anything big and important, but it is uh, the latter half of the 40s. We've We've gotten out of the escapist mindset of the depression and the early part of the war and we're post-war America is a very different mindset. But we are still in the, we are still in the height of post-war escapism in that. Yeah. We, we exist. We are dealing with like the same universe we talked about before. We're like, wow, the war just happened, but we're going to pretend that thing does not (laughs) exist. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't gotten Um, to that sort of that, that reckoning yet, which is fine because I mean, it makes for a great, goofy comedy yeah yeah this is also a comedy that sort of takes place outside of time like right like we don't know what like good escapist comedies of the of the period it could have been any time yeah we don't we don't know we'll never know it could have been war it could have been yeah who knows with the exception that that piece of recording equipment is obviously top of the line most recent tech but it's also exists as a point in this universe, in this movie universe, where it doesn't have to be a real thing. And it being right, a fan- actually, piece of fantasy I, yeah. tech, it could have been made in 1922. And And the points it makes are... It, yeah, it, it's fantasy tech, essentially, for the purposes of this film anyway. Combine yeah. that with the fact that like we, we deal with the reality that... like a person trying to use their tech to, to help them get away with murder and then not being able to use it because it's too fucking complicated <laughs> yeah. is timeless. It doesn't really matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. Whether this was this record thing, a tape recorder, any any of those devices yeah. could have the same joke. And so, like, as an audience, it doesn't matter that, like, it's obviously old-fashioned tech. That just doesn't matter because I look at that diagram, I can't fucking figure it out. I also really love that this is an early example of that sort of simple plan mentality where 
where the perfect plan put together that would have been so simple in the planning processes it shows up in a lot of heist movies especially coen brothers films and uh, even uh, bottle rocket's a great example of this idea too of uh they put together this perfect plan and then it immediately falls apart because they're all incompetent um except this is an example of it happening with just one guy right, <laughs> it falling right, right. apart it falling apart is no one's fault but his own incompetency right uh well, the fact it, it that, magnifies that he, it because it yeah. is it is also the, the, the plan is a is the product of a daydream rather than true planning, right? Like Exactly, exactly. Which makes it better. I mean, it makes it similar but different from those other ones, right? Because, like, no one planned this because a daydream is not a real plan, as yeah. any child will tell you. What you daydream about at school is not a real plan. So the fact that he decides to follow through on his brilliant strategy that he cooked up while conducting a symphony or an orchestra is ridiculous. I mean, it just is. But yeah. it's great. That's what makes it great, right? Because he thinks he can do the things that he daydreams, which is funny. That's just a funny idea. Like a person, not just a... Because, you know, there's lots of movies where people daydream and then they're brought back into reality. But... V- there, it's fairly, it's less common. I feel like to have the addition on that trope of a person who daydreams things and then and then tries to do them, and is just fucking laughably bad at trying to do them, is a, yeah. is another layer that you don't get in all the movies that have daydreams in them. Um, and I and I like it. It's fun to watch him just be very very bad at everything. It really it really is, and it's also convincingly bad because uh he's he's obviously distracted while he's making these plans too not only from his emotional state but he's actively partaking in a creative output while he's trying to daydream this stuff so it's i I am amused by the fact that the movie decides to throw in that like this is the best performance of his life because yeah yeah. he's going through these these wild emotional highs and lows that's a pretty great kind of like extras conceit of the film that I really enjoyed. Like daydreaming about being a murderer or about giving up his love or like, you know, committing essentially committing suicide, like puts him in this emotional state to be the best uh, director he or uh, conductor he's ever been. Is a is a funny conceit. Yeah, yeah, it's a hilariously wonderful movie. Um. Yeah, I just watch. No, I'm, watch I'm, unfaithfully yours. Sturgis. Yeah, it's it's good. I mean, it's really good. Sturgis was a master at at screwball comedies, and this is a fine example, uh, an excellent example, a grand and great example of yeah, that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's I disappointing it. that this movie was uh, not liked when it first came out. Uh, there was a remake in the 80s of this movie that was supposed to star yeah. Peter Sellers, but then didn't because he died. Uh, that uh, Dudley Moore ended up starring in. Um, and they took out all of the music sequences. Like... What? Like the... Uh, I, th- I I haven't seen it, but the description of it suggests that uh, there were not three different fantasies that he was involved with over the course of performing the music. 
Uh, Wait, in the in the remake. In the remake, whether that means there was just one or none, I don't know because I haven't seen it. But that, um, but that, but that, like, I can't even. All right, I can't even conceive of this because part of what makes this so good is is that sort of parallelism comparison yeah, thing that exactly this movie does right. If it were only one fantasy and one or something like that, it just wouldn't be as funny as watching him like try each step of this play of these three different ideas and just get kind of like frustrated with one and move on to the next one and just fail at that one too it's it's i can't imagine what that would be like without that in there well apparently be anything apparently even by 84 opinion of the original had changed so much that most reviewers were disappointed uh in the remake not living up to the original Right, well, the original I mean, that most reviewers hated. Well, <laughs> um, well, yeah, but I mean, like, if you go look at the ratings for this now and something like Rotten Tomato, that's there's oh yeah, there was clearly a shift because it's like got ninety one percent or something ridiculous yeah, like that. Yeah, people love I mean, it now. It it really was probably a movie slightly out of time, not a lot, but just enough to not do well in the box office. You know what I mean? Like sometimes we talk about films that are just like way out of sync with the time period they were made. This one's probably yeah. just slightly. You know what I mean? It's not really that far. It's just a little bit. Um, because people in 84 and 48 may or may not have been truly... Was 48, right? Yeah. Yeah. Were maybe not at the point where they were ready to go away from pure escapism into this sort of like mix of darkness in their... You know what I mean? Like, it may have just been slightly too much. Yeah. I, you mentioned in the the open the detective, and we haven't talked to him about at all since. Um, so I do want to touch on him for a little bit. First off, because his the scene of their meeting has one of my favorite lines as well, uh, where he tells uh, tells Sir Alfred, "Nobody handles handle the way you handle handle," which right, is uh, yeah, yeah, which is great, great line. Uh, but also just because Edgar Kennedy, who plays him, is such a fantastic actor in that sequence like like it's just he's definitely a standout you know he's i i'm sure it wasn't but that's the sort of like two minutes on screen and gets a supporting actor uh nom out of it performance because it's really he's really good and if the if the movie had been better received i think i think that would have been a real pop real possibility um but yeah, he's he's a fantastic actor, especially in that sequence, and and the way he moves from just being a fan to being an empathic fan because Edgar became a detective, or maybe didn't become a detective, but in in his past, his wife cheated on him, and and he's a big fan of this guy, not just because of the music, but also because he thinks they have similarities, right? Right. So, uh, though Sir Alfred certainly. By the end of their conversation, Sir Alfred believes they have similarities, uh, and then and then swings back to not believing it by the end of the film. But yeah, it's uh, such a fantastic sequence and such a fantastic movie. Uh, but a standout a standout sequence within a fantastic movie. So uh, and a standout sequence within a movie that has a huge standout sequence in its 
yeah, the beginning I mean, of its third act or right. end of its second mean, well, act. Well, it, it has other ones, but yeah, that I mean, that's yeah. the that's the main thing right there. But yeah, actually, when you really think about it, um, the performance that uh, Rex Harrison puts in in that scene is fucking ridiculous. Yeah, because that's he's just alone for yeah. like how long is that sequence? That's like it's got to be a full ten. Maybe even longer than ten minutes, right? Yeah, in that in the apartment. Yeah, and I mean, he carries it really, really well. Um, well, it's also the most slapsticky portion of the film, right? Too. But like car- but, doing slapstick by yourself, yeah, it's good stuff. Can be hard to. I mean, think about all the movies you've seen in your life. Not that many slapstick films that feature a single actor doing slapstick are actually very good. There are standouts that you can think of, but there's for every standout that you can think of, there's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like fifty or a hundred that were fucking terrible. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like you actually have to be really good at doing that kind of performance to do it by yourself. Yeah. Because there's no one to carry you. You have to just do it. And that turns out really well, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think we could probably pull this to a close. I don't. Yeah, I mean, it'll be a short. Think episode, we have a whole lot of. We we yeah. have problems with comedies. We, is, is what really we have comedy. We have problems with comedies that we really love. Uh, right. Yeah. Because if we ever find a bad comedy, we'll hate. We'll, yeah. Well, I mean, we don't really. We have not found a. I think the problem is, is that whenever we find a comedy that we don't find funny, we don't register it as a comedy, and we talk about it seriously. <laughs> So, like, we don't, like, it goes on forever of us just, like, lambasting it, but it's because we didn't even register it as a comedy. That's absolutely true. That is, that is damningly accurate. Yeah, that is damningly accurate. We're real, real bad. Uh, Well, uh, this week we've been talking about Unfaithfully Yours from 1948 Preston Sturges. Uh, next week we will be talking about a movie that I really love as well, uh, but uh, not quite as screwball comedy as this. Let's be clear here. There is a surprising amount of similarities between the next movie and this movie, which but I yes. found very surprising. Yes. Uh, one of those great Criterion back-to-backs. Uh, movies that we wouldn't even think about the connections between without having watched them. Uh, why Why wouldn't you make a movie about St. Francis that's also a screwball comedy? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's certainly possible. Uh, the Flowers of St. Francis we'll be talking about next week. The 1950 film by Roberto Rossellini. Uh, and co-written by, by Federico Fellini. Which um, is hilarious in and of itself. Uh, yeah. Uh, we'll touch on why that might be a little more hilarious in next week's episode, oh, uh, I'm excited, I, I need yeah. to remember. I need to remember that connection to bring it up. Uh, but thank you for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Young Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and we'll see you again. Bye. Bye.
You've been listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. We'd appreciate it.